Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Roberta Schwartz. Roberta Schwartz is the Executive Vice President and Chief Innovation Officer at Houston Methodist Hospital. She's responsible for overseeing all operations at the Academic Medical Center facility and leading the Center for Innovation. Prior to joining Houston Methodist, Roberta worked for Mount Sinai in New York, spent time in consulting with APM, and worked for CMS. Roberta is a recognized leader in healthcare administration, spends time volunteering in the community, and raising three children with her husband, Lee. Roberta, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It is, it is quite an honor. Thank you. Roberta, it's an honor to have you on our show. We're super excited to dig in. You know, you've been absolutely immersed in healthcare for your entire life. So I, I, I really see there's going to be no shortage of topics that we can talk about. Um, just from, you know, some of the research that we've dug into, you grew up candy striping at the hospital outside of Pittsburgh, volunteered for almost every single position that you could. Uh, you know, you're a patient who overcame uh, breast cancer, you were a mother who has handled and deals with Rett syndrome, you're on the health advisory board at Hopkins, the Council of 33 at HIPS, one of modern healthcare's top 25 women to watch, and almost three decades later now, you're still as passionate as ever in healthcare. And so where I wanted to start the conversation is just how has your personal journey shaped your views on engaging patients as consumers today? You know, I feel very lucky that um, I happened into or planned a career and something that I'm incredibly passionate about. You know, I never expected to be a patient, uh, certainly in a very uh, aggressive way that early in my life. Um, I keep joking that I had my gallbladder taken out when I was 22 and breast cancer when I was 27. So I'm waiting to get acne at the age of 80. Um, so, you know, if, if you look, I feel like I've done things a little bit backwards. And, and when we had, um, a, you know, a normal child followed by a child um, with Rett syndrome sandwiched with another normal child, um, it, it certainly helped us to understand and, get, and develop a level of patience that um, raising a special needs child takes. Uh, the you know, unfortunately, you treat with Rett syndrome, you're treating symptoms, and you're aggressively doing therapy and hoping that scientists really will um, take us the rest of the way. So, you know, I, I live in this balance between reality of the situations that patients face and hope that um, our scientists and our clinicians will um, develop a level of cure and treatment so that what we face today, we won't have to face tomorrow. So I, I stand in awe um, of our clinicians. It's uh, I, honestly, I, I don't think I'd be anywhere else. I'd be happy to you know, wash floors around these parts just to kind of be around the type of people who do the work that they do. That's amazing. Yeah. And Roberta, I, I was curious. I mean, you started your career in consulting in New York and then at some point shifted gears to, to you know, Sinai. Um, what was the turning point for you to really go all in in healthcare? Like, what was it your personal journey um, with health? Was it something else? Uh, love to get a sense of how you you shifted to healthcare. 
No, there aren't that many people who you're going to meet who basically said it like in their teenage years, this is exactly what I wanted to do. But um, it really was volunteering in hospitals. I loved them. I loved hospitals. Um, one of those few people who likes the smell of them and, um, and really wanted to be there, but never really wanted to be a clinician, never really um, saw myself in that clinical sphere. And so looked for this administrative pathway. At the time, there weren't that many places doing it and, and teaching it. One of my friends or a series of my friends were doing investment uh, banking in New York. Um, that wasn't really a good pathway towards administration, but consulting was. Um, so after a stint in the federal government, um, went into consulting and, and really APM at the time, um, there are a few firms like that today that are very impressive. And, and it was all in healthcare. So you had 400 professionals who ate, slept, drank, lived healthcare. I mean, you were with them away four nights a week, three to four nights a week. And so you'd go to dinner and you'd be talking about healthcare and you'd go to sleep, you know, dreaming about healthcare and you'd wake up the next morning and start talking healthcare over breakfast. And it was an immersive five years of dealing with, I mean, top of their fields. I mean, Steve Levin and Tom Enders, who's at Monat now and, and, you know, Steve's at, at Chartis and Chris Regan and um, David, who's at, you know, BDC advisors, like they're, they're all over the country. I mean, the colleagues I work with are running hospitals, they're running technology firms. Margaret Prashushko is, you know, COO and president of Mount Sinai. I mean, you, you got to know these people who, the alumni of which are, you know, the elite in the field. And, and I feel truly blessed to have um, been able to be a part of the firm um, deciding really to go in-house at Mount Sinai um, after my battle with breast cancer, just because I wanted to be home and I wanted to really do a, a series of volunteer work. I think I, I certainly was shaken um, by my journey and uh, the idea of being at home and being able to balance a work life with a volunteer life and really giving back to the breast cancer community was was particularly important to me. So, and and I have to say, I loved my time at Mount Sinai, and I'm very thankful for it. That's incredible. Because yeah, I I think even you know at the time, and maybe even still today, you know, breast cancer was often thought you know it's it's only affecting older women, and that was a clearly a misconception that needed to be addressed. And I think that's um, you know a lot of what your volunteer work was, uh, especially in the early days. Um, so we've established, yeah, you were at Mount Sinai, and then very quickly you, you shifted gears to Texas uh, to work at, at Houston Methodist, and an opportunity came up, and so I was curious, what was that initial role, and what was so exciting about this opportunity that pulled you away from New York? Um, well, I married a Texan, uh, an incredible Texan, um, and uh, so having looked in at New York City and trying to convince him that uh, when I was pregnant, we should move out to the suburbs. Um, it, it just, he, he, uh, he didn't love that opportunity. And so when I um, came to check out the world down here in Texas and had an opportunity in this incredible institution here, I called him from the airport and I said, I think we're moving. And uh, he just, just sat on the phone, you know, just flabbergasted at the other end and said, Okay, and um, so it was me who brought us back to uh, Texas and have been here. I've been at Methodist uh, ever since. So I've been here now 
going on 21 years uh, and yeah, they've yeah. been 21 fantastic years. And uh, I, I really have not looked back. Um, I miss home, um, but we've had a fantastic life down here. When you first got to Houston Methodist, um, what were you initially um, focused on and how has that uh, evolved over the years? So I was brought down here to help build the cancer service line. Made perfect sense if you think about it, right? I have a, a vested interest and a, and a vast knowledge of it. Um, and so that was what I was really brought here to do was really build on an NCI, build an NCI designated cancer center. Uh, at the time, we were um, more in a, a long-term relationship with um, uh, with Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, we did get that NCI designation over at Baylor College of Medicine. And then shortly thereafter, our relationship um, changed quite a bit. We um, didn't have the close-knit affiliation. We do have a series of affiliations and, and share a series of programs, but we, we no longer had that close relationship in cancer. So I, I, though I stayed doing cancer for a while, I switched over into the transplant and heart um, taking over basically COO type duties and then um, CEO of our flagship um, not too long ago. And mm -hmm. my, my title is the executive vice president, but I kind of run um, this campus. Uh, and then a, a few years ago, added on and really became very passionate about the um, work in digital technologies that I really see transforming our field and um, really got started with the Center for Innovation here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so actually, I, I do want to dig into, you know, the genesis of the Center for Innovation. Prior to 2018, what I've read and what I understand is the Center for Innovation kind of did exist at Methodist, but it was really formed by yourself and a, a few other passionate individuals from different departments where you, you set up a committee, sort of like a book club where you'd meet and discuss innovation. Um, and I think it was dubbed the Committee for Digital Innovation Obsessed People. Um, and one of the main tenets of that uh, DIOP was to succeed fast and fail fast. And in healthcare, it's such a risk adverse industry and failures are more costly when patient safety is you know, top of mind. So I'm curious, how do you make fail fast a practical philosophy in, in the context of healthcare? So... Um, first of all, thank you so much. I've obviously gotten the message across. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled that I did not have to give that whole speech. Um, but, but I think um, your question's really good. You know, in a live environment where you're dealing with um, patients, uh, how, how do you try new things um, in a way and kind of on a large scale push them out? And, and, and part of it is that when we're dealing with a lot of the aspects of healthcare, that frustrate patients the most. They're not the clinical care. They're not the moment of dealing with a doctor or the moment where you're getting your cath lab procedure. They're everything around it that are the, the paper cuts, you know, often referred to as the friction points um, before you get there. It's like, how long did you have to wait in that waiting room before they called your name and you went back to the exam room only to wait again until the doctor came in? right? I mean, it's not the five minutes or hour you're with the doctor. It's the every phone call you had to make to get there. It's every moment of waiting. It's the forms that you had to fill out. And if you go to the doctor next door, fill out again. It's the bills that you can't understand. The frustrations of the phone call to who am I following up with and how do I make those appointments, right? That's, and, and that is 
not necessarily those points where um, you worry. You, you will, if you screw it up, you frustrate people more, but I'm probably, you know, not in a, 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 um, a danger point of doing something bad clinically. So what you're really working towards is how do we reduce frustration? Well, luckily, a lot of other industries have been there. And so it just took healthcare watching what's happening in supermarkets and in hotels and in airlines and in every other industry to recognize that while these functions existed in every other industry and we just need to work our way towards adoption. Now, a lot of other industries think that healthcare is going to be super simple and they can just take what they've done in those industries and plop it down. And what you recognize is that you do need the combination of people who really know the inside and know all the intricacies. Because, you know, I, I looked around recently to find out how many places you could just sign up and get your MRI, like sign up and get your appointment for your MRI. And you actually can't. And one of the reasons is because um, we don't, when you sign up and you come in for the public, do you need a 3.0 MRI, a 1.5? You know, what are the coils that you're doing it on? Do you need with contrast, without contrast? Do you have a pacemaker? Do you have any kind of metal shunt in your body, right? I mean, there, there are a series of things that impact whether or not you can go on our MRI machine. And so what they have you do is fill out a form and it's very asynchronous. Well, I challenged kind of our folks recently to basically say, look, we got the order already. We know, and we have your medical chart. We know what you're allergic to. We know what the doctor ordered for you. We know whether or not you have that shunt and we know whether or not you have that pacemaker. So it's up to me to do all my homework and then push out for you the available appointments online and let you pick which one you want, right? Rather than having this asynchronous type of experience, what work can I do behind the scenes? And But each step of that, it's not like ordering a Tide Pod, right? It's it's not like you can choose between six brands and they'll all be fine. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily the case in healthcare. And, and so you need that inside knowledge mapped to a robust record, mapped to you, you know a simplistic scheduling system, mm -hmm. right? So that the friction goes down but the sophistication behind the scenes is all there. Right. I really love the example you just gave about, you know, when you went through that experience as a patient, as a consumer, having to try and get an MRI, you gain a lot of empathy for almost like the, the user experience of a patient going through the healthcare system. And I've heard of other industries, I think recently, um, I think it was DoorDash where part of the requirement now is that I think is it an hour or something a month you have to actually go and do deliveries so that even if you're an engineer you have to develop empathy for the customer experience i was curious um how do you make that part how do you make the sort of dog footing of your own product part of running a healthcare organization like do you ever consider having your innovation team actually see what it's like to be a patient in different ways so that you can build that empathy and find improvement opportunities it's kind of hard to dog food your own product in healthcare sometimes you know you kind of hope you're not a patient in some ways. So I was curious if you found ways to, to kind of dog food to get innovation done. You know, I think um, for us, it's really easy. Um, if you think about it, every one of us have friends, neighbors, relatives, everybody who is gonna interact with our healthcare system. And they're gonna tell you what they think. Um, and so there's no, uh, 
no quiet opinions. In addition to that, a lot of us are customers of our own healthcare center. And we all have primary care doctors and we've all gotten tests here. So we know what the experience is like from the inside. Um, in addition, you know, for me, with the executives that I have, whether it's here or on the innovation team, we all round with the nurses because some of the experience that it isn't just the patient experience that's important, it's the staff experience that's important. And they and our doctors are our customers. So I round every Sunday that I'm in town. Um, every Sunday, you're going to find me here at the hospital, sitting down with the staff, catching the doctors, asking them what they think. And one of the reasons I love Sunday is because it's not so much activity. They have time to sit down with me. They have a little more time to give me feedback. So I'll pop into a patient's room. Are you using that iPad? Why, are you, why aren't you using that iPad? What do you like about it? What do you not like about it? And so from there, you can provide that feedback. And, you know, we set up a new command center this week. We were working on some throughput initiatives. And part of it was I was really frustrated on Sunday finding a series of people who probably could have could have left and could have gone home, but there was friction in their way. And so the question is, how can you set up a structure that can remove that friction? And, and that's kind of what we're all about in here in, in our focus. And and it's, um, I, I think that's a philosophy that I've, um, I've lived. You know, I will do night rounding, I will do weekend rounding. And you know, there's a big joke, like, right, try to make sure Roberta doesn't find the stuff on her round, um, <laughs> right? Like, so everyone's trying to be me and make sure. And, and I love that, right? I mean, it's, uh, I had a boss a, a little while ago and her answer was, if I'm in your business, you're not doing a very good job. You know, and, and there's a little bit of, if I'm finding it, that means you haven't found it. I absolutely love the fact that, I mean, even though you're an executive, you're actually going, you know, onto the floors, you're, you're going to patient rooms, you're kind of doing the frontline discovery yourself. And so you're, you're kind of saying the message, hey, like no one is too good to get their, you know, roll up their sleeves, get their hands dirty, make things better, right at the front line. So that, that's a, that's an awesome message to send. Yeah, it's funny. Um, Recently, it, it, I mean, COVID's been kind of an interesting time and, and it's required all of us to pitch in in a variety of ways. And um, I, I, there's only, I mean, during hurricanes, actually, I, I usually collect trash. Um, it's one of my jobs because, you know, I mean, there are things I can do um, not being a clinician. And, and this time uh, we, we've had really, really, really full emergency rooms. So I was pushing, um, I was transporting patients and, and I'm not that good of a driver, I mean, period. Um, you know, I am a New Yorker, so let's, let's start. <laughs> and, uh, so, so I was driving the, the, taking the stretcher and I was driving it up and I ran into one of the transporters who was like, stop. And I was like, okay, like, what, what am I doing? And she walked over and she like stuck her foot like on the pedal. And she goes, you know, it's much easier if you put it in steer. And I was like, <laughs> that's embarrassing. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> And, um, but that's, that's a design flaw in the transport. <laughs> it should have been very obvious. <laughs> it was like fevering and, and I was like, wow, okay. Um, but it's like, it is really interesting. It, I think, and, and, I, and I would say it's not just me. Like 
all of my executives are that way and my directors are that way. And, and you can say leadership is from the top and, and that's absolutely true, right? I mean, there's, there's no doubt, no one, um, people see it because I do it. But I would say to you that this place in Methodist and the reason I fit in this culture is because when I got here, you know, the woman I worked for, I mean, she was famous for picking up trash and being pissed off. I mean, you could never find as much trash as she would along the way. And she would show you the scuff marks on the wall and say, those are my walls. This is my house. This is, my house doesn't look this way. And in, when you internalize it and recognize that I have a home and this is my other home, right? This is my work home. And my work home has to be treated with the same love and care as my personal home. So I think that culture permeated long before I got here. I am a steward of that culture. Um, but that culture is interwoven in these in our eye care values and everything that we're about. And it was just labels, really, what they are. But, but it's been really, I, I think the journey watching um, Houston Methodist is really incredible. And there, there was no surprise to me that we were the first in the nation to require the vaccine because that's what we're about. I mean, we're about safety. We're about, you know, quality. We're about doing the right thing. We're about treating people the right way. And, and it, I mean, whether it's the Center for Innovation or whether it's just the way we treat people, those are the expectations of we're not perfect. We are not perfect. Um, I can promise you that, but we're a learning culture. And my answer is I want to be better. So when you write into me and you tell me we didn't do it right, the answer is I just have to be better. I just have to do it better. And, and these days doing it better is adding on a technological solution that can help us because we aren't an industry with endless amounts of people that say, you know, hey, let me raise my hand and be the nurse on the COVID unit, right? We've, we've needed to, um, we were always gonna run into a shortage of nurses and so we need that technology to come up and aid our professionals in the way we're doing our job. And, and I think that's something that it's, we got a head start on it, but I think as an industry, the recognition that we need to continue to transform is, is evident. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, innovation is also in Methodist kind of foundations as well. And healthcare innovation is, is an exceptionally broad topic. I think I read, you know, when you joined and, and first launched the Center for Innovation, one of your top priorities was to disrupt every single area of Houston Methodist uh, with digital technology in order to make healthcare easier, more accessible, and like you said, less friction for everyone involved. I think that's an awesome way to view uh, innovation. There was an analogy that you once said about uh, painting the Brooklyn Bridge and, you know, it's so large, you get from one end all the way to the other. And by the time you're at the other end, you have to repaint the entire thing. So it never stops. It's always this cycle of innovation where you're constantly looking for, you know, the scuff marks on the wall or what can you repaint again? So I really love that. I'm curious, you know, how do you ensure that your mission aligns with the overarching goals of the health system and not just introducing digital for the sake of it? You know, I, I think the answer is, does it have, you have to constantly ask that question of, does it have a return on the investment? And, and I'm not saying that those return on investments are always dollars and cents, right? Sometimes they are an experience. Sometimes they are a, 
a way that people to make it easier for them to find you or get the healthcare they need, or people that you might not necessarily reach, you suddenly can reach um, with the technology. But the ability to take healthcare into new places and aid either your staff or the patients on getting something that they need. And, you know, our jobs are a little bit of, um, it's funny, I've, I've got to be in a little bit of a business of getting people what they don't know that they needed yet. It, you know, when you read the stories of um, some of the things that Facebook is doing or Amazon or other kinds of things, when you read about them, you realize that it's like, wow, that's, that's creepy. Like, how do you, how do you know that about me? Right? Like how is Netflix serving up shows that like I might like, and, and they're right. Like, do you know what I mean? Can they read my mind? Can mm -hmm. they do? Well, I mean, for me, you know, I, a lot of the products that we've brought in, we have to spend a lot of time selling then once they're bought, right, once people figure out what they are, they're like, how do you know we needed that? And I'm like, like that, then, then I know I've, I've made victory, right? I mean, and, and it's not me, right? There's this whole team. I, I say I, but I is the entire, you know, innovation structure. And many times it's, it's people from within Methodists that are these incredible people who bring us these ideas. Right, we shepherd these ideas along. So, yes, do we um, uh, set the categories? Okay, remote monitoring. We're looking for the right remote monitoring. I think I found it. I think I'm there. Um, but we've been looking for the right platform, and um, no one's coming to us saying, "I've got six things I want to start remote monitoring." What we've been looking for is the right platform. Once we get it, we're going to bring it. And I will tell you for a little while, people are going to look at us like we've got six heads. Like, what am I supposed to do with that device? Like, what? Wait, that thing? Like, what, what, what you do? Like, <laughs> and then I, I can tell you that if they don't buy it, right? If, if they don't understand after I pitch it and pitch it again and pitch it again and pitch it again, pitch it again and pitch it again. If it isn't bought by that point, it's just not there. But if you just keep throwing that line in the water and the first fish comes up and goes, oh my God, wow, wow, like, where'd you find this? And like two or three people do that, you know that you've struck the right solution. And, and I think that's what's amazing. If I just keep with our teams, keep feeding up the areas that we know, we know are needed, then eventually it will work. And, it, you know, it kind of gives you the idea. We put in machines in our, um, I mean, again, we look at big and small. We put in machines in the, um, in the marketplace, in our cafeteria um, for people to auto check out. And um, they went in right before COVID. And then, of course, you shut down really to visitors. Like, it was much quieter, so you really didn't have that much traffic. And so no one used them. And then now that it's getting busier again, I mean, you can see, like, everyone has figured out how to use the machines and, like, stick your stuff on and get the heck out of there. Um, and, and it takes, like, it's, like, it takes me uh, 10 seconds to do that versus waiting 10 minutes in line. Mm -hmm. 
So again, removal of the friction. And one of the key things to remove the friction that you left was they were sort of used before, but as soon as we went to payroll on our ID card, the mm. friction was gone. Mm -hmm. Now they're now all the staff can use them. But the friction of having to carry a credit card made them not as well used. So it's interesting, it's that that point of recognition of what you need to do to move from not used to used. Robert, your story about the, the machine in the cafeteria reminds me of how, you know, before COVID, no one could seem to find the video on their Zoom. Right? And then all of a sudden during COVID, oh, there's a camera. And, uh, <laughs> there's video. Now we all can't find the mute button. How much time <laughs> do, we today do we spend going like, ah, oh, money, ah. Oh. So true. Yes, no one has solved the mute problem just yet. That is very true. No, no. <laughs> and it's so funny because Zoom like has really tried. I mean, these, these different features have tried that like, you've got your mute on because right. you're talking um, like you idiot. Uh, but but it really is. Um, it is funny. And, and someone said it's going to take a long time before I stop looking at someone's forehead, you know, rather than, you know, in their eyes and so yeah, I, I have to work very hard to stare at, my, at the uh, the actual camera. I always forget. Uh, I, I have to give that direct eye contact. It's a tough one for me. You want to look at the people. And, and we tried a meeting um, in like VR space oh, cool. um, to see whether or not we could get used to that. And that that's another um, very freaky experience. You, you did but, the whole metaverse meeting? Is that what you did? Something like tried. that? Or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. we're all reaching out. To oh, wow. Did you have an avatar? Did, they look, did, they look, did your avatar look like you? Well, okay, define, I mean, I guess me in a cartoon character with kind of a, you know, but the nice part of the metaverse is I can look whatever I want to look. Right. You're like, it, it looked like me aside from the fact that I was 10 feet tall, but other than that, you know, no, that's great. So, there were no wrinkles and the gray was not coming in. Exactly. Well, Zoom, Zoom helps with that too. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of, you know, metaverse meetings, Zoom meetings is great. Um, you know, Roberta, given all that's happened over the past two years, um, I, I thought it was rather profound to think about the fact that Houston Methodist Hospital was established at the height of the Spanish flu epidemic. Um, and, you know, you've personally been involved at Methodist for several crises, um, aside from COVID. So all of the hurricanes, Hurricane Harvey, Allison, Ike, uh, and now COVID-19. Um, I read that you've been dubbed the incident commander uh, for your skill in organizing people, places, and things. I was curious, what's your framework for dealing with a crisis in a health system? Because you, you do have a lot of experience with it. You know, um, organizing an incident command is really all about getting the right people at the table and allowing them to lead different sections. And, and it's, it's no different than, I often liken it to a conductor of a symphony. It, it's just figuring out that at this moment in time, the most important person is infection control. And at the next moment in time, it's laboratory. And it, like you have to move resources to the area of the institution that needs the help and allow them to scream when things are going wrong and not going wrong. And then having an amazing communication person, because no matter what you do, communications communication on an ongoing basis, whether you're in the middle of a hurricane um, or you're, you know, dealing with a COVID situation, people want to hear from 
from individuals at the institution. And it's not always the incident commander, right? It's most of our communications come out from our physician in chief. Some of our communications come out from our CEO of our system. Some of them come out from me, you know, recognizing who, who needs to be communicated and, and what needs to be communicated from all of these different um, instruments is really mm -hmm. important because again, it, it's different when you're playing in the orchestra, the flute, you can hear the flute, right? They get their own microphone. And it, it's as if like none of those instruments, you can hear them until the communication person allows the sound to come through, right? They're the, they're the mediator between the sound that somebody's making and the microphone. And, and I think that that is, um, that's a learned experience and in you, um, you have to know when to communicate with state agencies and sometimes when to stop communicating. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's interesting to have lived through many of these and watch different areas of the organization to have to be brought to the forefront. I mean, one, one of the more fascinating ones was we were going through COVID and then in the middle of COVID, we had the snow often referred down here to the snow vid, snowmageddon, uh, just about a year ago, actually, um, where a lot of the state was shut down um, due to uh, electrical issues associated with the freezing cold temperatures. And one of the more interesting parts was the amount of our staff that were impacted by pipes being mm. broken. So whereas electricity was one thing, the pipes bursting all over the place and the inability to get plumbers to stop all of these leaks was really doing massive damage to people's houses. And so, you know, wait, one minute you are having to decide whether or not people could get in. Well, they can't get in because they have plumbing issues. Well, you know, you, get, you can't send the patients home. I mean, it, it was like multiple things going on and the typical command center became a completely different command center. And, and it, it's, um, I don't know why I've now been doing COVID for a few years. I, I originally started it, I, I am insanely organized, um, but I'm, I'm not the only one at Methodist, it's just, I stood it up and then and I'm here two weeks, two years later. But I can tell you the people on incident command through COVID, we are now a very tight knit family and we have all been together now for over two years. And it's a it's a pretty awesome family at this point. Yeah, I believe that. And I love the analogy too of the orchestra because if you know just the tuba was playing the whole time, it would be a complete disaster. So that it totally makes sense. Sorry, Josh, I think you had a question. Oh, no, no, I had more of a comment. I, I was also going to say an, an incredible um, experience there. And I think the crazy thing about incident command is that it's not something that you can just, I don't know, practice every day. And then, I mean, basically crises happen. Then you're like, okay, let's get our stuff together and deal with it. Um, so it's incredible how you've been able to navigate all of those given probably very limited, you know, practical experience that can go into preparing for it. So gosh, I can't even imagine what it's like to, to do that. Now, now, one advantage that we do have here at Houston Methodist is, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit different than a lot of centers. When you do face flood events and hurricanes and uh, weather events 
on somewhat of a routine basis, you know, call it every few years. If you've been around this part for, and a lot of us have long tenure at Methodist, we've done this together a number of different times. So, it, you know, whenever it happens, it's like watching this machine. It just goes into effect. And that's different than a lot of places in the United States, right? It's, it's going to be more typical in, you know, in a Texas around the Gulf, in Florida, in North Carolina, than it is in the middle of Michigan, right? It's, it's just, you're not going to have that quite as often. And so our, our uh, preparedness for disasters is just better. And, and Sherry Fink, who's one of the writers for the New York Times, who's just one of my heroes, um, you know, she, she studies a lot of disasters around the world. And one of her um, comments when we were talking was, people who do disasters more often are better at disasters. And, and I think there's, there is some wisdom to that. <laughs> I obviously love your attitude there. I mean, you basically went from, yeah, we have more disasters, but you know what? That means we're more prepared. That's such a positive attitude. I really, really love that. Thank you for, for sharing that. Totally. So, Roberta, I was wondering, you know, prior to COVID, you really effectively laid the foundation for various virtual technologies um, used at Methodist. So, examples, digital patient engagement you implemented, asynchronous scheduling, virtual ICUs, intelligent locations, which you've talked about quite often, uh, especially now, and even voice technology, um, which we will get into a, a, in a little bit. But I'm curious first, just what inspired you to look for and implement all these new kind of seemingly disjointed, but obviously can be put together technologies? You know, we, we listen to pitches all the time. Uh, we're constantly scouting. In fact, um, we all are out at various conferences starting, goodness, March and April is big conference season um, in the tech world. And uh, one of the things we said is, okay, everyone, like start gathering up all the things that people want and let's go on the hunt. So, you know, we're always looking for things, but in addition, we just hear, we'll, when we go to conferences, we hear about things that, um, that have been implemented as well as talking to innovators around the country. We all have relationships with various innovators around the country. And oftentimes, whether it's an innovator or a VC firm, I'll say, what's the best thing you've got? Like, give me the best. And do you know, the question is, is it something we need or does it overlap with something we have? So um, recently I was looking for um, something in the remote monitoring space and not ready to talk about it yet, but I'm, I'm almost giddy um, hmm. with the opportunity that I think we have in front of us. And um, and it's, it's I, honestly, it's like watching, you can see my eyes light up, right? It's like watching a kid in a candy store. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, I can, you know, um, now look at what I can transform and um, am insanely excited. So we're always looking for those opportunities and you can feel it when someone walks in and they're like, I've got it. I've mm -hmm. got the next thing. Like I saw it and, and it's like a next piece of a puzzle. And, and, it, you know, when you do a puzzle, it's always easiest to start around the edges, right? It's easiest to start around the pieces that you know, but then there's no right answer to, you know, how you how you put the rest of the puzzle together. Mm -hmm. It's just, right, this piece fits in, that piece fits in, and and the more you make of it, the, the clearer the puzzle is. Um, this is just a, one of those puzzles that doesn't have a map on top, right? It doesn't have the picture to tell you how it's supposed to be put together. 
um, we're just we're working on it as we go. And 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 I think that that's I I don't know. I can tell you what 22's roadmap looks like. Although we always leave ourselves both budget and room to do things that we didn't know we were going to need to do. Um, but I can tell you that uh, that 20 like 2023 is being written right now. Like we're not we we we're different than a traditional IT shop. I don't have a three-year roadmap of things that are going to have to be replaced or, you know, upgrades that are going to have to be done or new systems or large scale implementations that need to be done. I haven't even found necessarily the technology we're going to put it in 2023. So on that note about, I guess, the, the future and how you think about it, Roberta. So, you know, better than, than most people, you know, there's always this explosion of patient facing innovations in, in digital health. And I'm, I'm wondering, how do you think maybe five years from now, we're going to be reaching patients digitally that really isn't common today? Um, no, I, I think that um, when we look at the next few years, you're going to look at an explosion of remote monitoring that is is gonna be, you know, today we talk about wearables, right? You're gonna be talking in a different way about sensors. Um, and I think that's gonna be, um, they're all kinds right now, but I think that people joke about it, right? What am I gonna stick in my toilet to tell me what the problems are, right? <laughs> what am right. I gonna stick on you know, what type of band-aids am I going to stick on my body that's going to sense whether or not there's a problem? I think that's, those are, um, that's an up and coming area. The second one is really taking the world of big data and making it big predictive data. Um, and we are just, I mean, that is like, some people talk about it as if it's here. I say it's in its infancy, you know, it's, it's coming but it's in its infancy. So the, the key question is, can I tell you you're gonna have a heart attack tomorrow instead of having just had a heart attack, right? That's, that's a predictive world. And, and I think that's, it will come. Um, it's harder than I think people thought it was going to be um, to get to some of that because again, consumer buying, it was easier to get there. And this is harder. Um, so I, if, if you look at it, I don't think it's about the way you're going to access the doctors. I think uh, someone used the term, which I, you know, I love that fidgetal, right? The, the combination of physical and digital that's here to stay. I think you'll see growth in that area and maturity in that area. But Actually, you're going to see the next explosion beyond the stuff that you're not doing today. And I'm wondering um, how much of that growth uh, do you think depends on kind of the continuous shift from, you know, fee-for-service to value-based care environments where, you know, as a hospital, you are more on the hook for an outcome outside the four walls of the hospital. I mean, it, it's continuing to slowly shift, but do you think that continues to be a, a necessary part of the equation to get more adoption of digital? Or do you think regardless of that, even if it kind of stalls out, we'll still get a, a pretty strong shift to, to more digital, more virtual? Somebody is on the hook for the cost. If it's fee for service, or if it's if it's managed care, or whatever you're doing, right? There is somebody at the end of the value equation, 
That is you, the consumer. That is the employer. That is the government. That could be an insurance company. That could be a hospital system. So somebody's going to be looking to get value out of the system, right? Reduce costs. Somebody's going to be looking somewhere to reduce costs, mostly you, right? You, you and your employer, you and what you're paying for your bill, you and, you know, whatever. Everyone's looking to bend that cost curve. And the question is how? So it, it, it's less to me about who is doing it than the fact that it's going to happen because people want it to happen. In addition to that, people and consumers want, want more healthcare, less cost, less friction. So if I can stick a little biosensor on my body and have you tell me, you know, oop, 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 guess what? There's something wrong. And now I have to go to the doctor versus my annual visit. Maybe that's a better way to do it. Who says that the annual visit is the right cadence? Mm -hmm. Maybe for me, it's every three months. And maybe for you, it's every five years. Right? I, I mean, I don't know. But but we can, with this data, change the environment. And, and we know that because we change our habits. I mean, who knew that I needed a machine to tell me how far I walked? <laughs> Love that. I mean, you're basically what you're saying is, it's, I mean, when you think about personalized medicine, personalized care, it's not just about personalized clinical treatments. It could be even personalized approaches to access to care or time spent with clinicians and workflows and all that. That That's really, really insightful. I love that. And, and I, I take it with my, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the example of my Rett syndrome daughter. Um, there's really almost nothing that we can, I mean, you know, she has, she's 18 and she has a pediatric OBGYN because Rett syndrome is not easy to deal with periods. And, and, but they can't, unless we're going to anesthetize her, we're not going to go in for OBGYN appointments. So there's, I just get online, have a short visit with her doctor and we're done because I don't want to take up her appointment, her time in the appointment for someone she really needs the time with. I just need five minutes to go over what's happening, right? I am a five minute check-in as opposed to her neurologist where I may need an hour mm -hmm. every few months to kind of up and down the drug, right? So I don't need to bother this doctor with time. I need to borrow, bother this doctor with time. And I don't need those appointments to look or feel equal. And that's one of the things that needs to change, right? Our payment structures need to follow that this doctor may get a smaller amount of money than this doctor a larger amount of money because it doesn't need to be exactly the same. And even now we're talked about paying for digital instead of paying for in-person, but we may need to even tailor those appointments mm -hmm. to what's being done. And, and I think that, that there are some moves in the remote monitoring codes that will help kind of push along some of these technologies because technologies do follow some of the payment structures. Mm -hmm. yeah, totally makes sense. Uh, there's one last question that I do wanna dig into, Roberta. Um, it's voice technology. So I, I know I said I'd come back to it. Um, you know, I, I read recently or 
before I before I even get into what I read, when I think about healthcare in the future, um, you know, I definitely see myself talking to an AI, talking to you know, using my voice to actually get care. So whether it's physical or virtual, I'm going to be receiving care from my voice. And I've read that you've currently incorporated voice technology into a lot of different workflows at Methodist. Uh, for example, assisting patients at their bedside, physician note taking. Uh, even ordering medications over a virtual appointment. It's taking it in the background. I'm curious what initially drew you to this novel idea and what are you most excited about for its future? Yeah, I think the nice part is, you know, if you think about it, voice is not novel. It's more novel in our industry. And the harder part is because our electronic medical records are built around discrete fields. And so if you look at a screen, you're going to see height, weight, you know, I mean, they are all mm -hmm. very discrete fields. We don't have open nodes. We have discrete nodes with some open text fields at the bottom, which is really what makes voice complicated in the clinical environment. And we need that because we want to chart. Did your weight go up? Did your weight go down? And if you have the, in the middle of an open note, then it's harder to you know, map, it, it's hard to have a Word document that Excel opens up and suddenly, yeah. you know, does a chart from, right? It doesn't work. Um, and so there's two schools of thought. One is a kind of a road that people are going down, which is to write an open note and have natural language processing, pull out various elements and dump them into discrete fields. There's another way of going down the road of having somebody talk and have those discrete elements picked up as you speak and add them into the discrete elements. Neither one of them are perfect. Both of them have a lot of work to go. And I would say that there's a lot of people working on this. They, um, some of them have gotten um, fueled by almost, wait, what are you doing? Wait, you can't do that, we'll do it. You know, it's really, it's been interesting to watch this. Um, when you say you're not good at it and we'll do it better, then sometimes people do listen to this podcast and lots of others and say, wait a second, that's our business. You know, we, we gotta step up the game. And, and I do appreciate that I think there are a lot of people with us. We've done the work um, heavily with Amazon uh, Amazon and Parveda, mainly because we think Amazon has some of the best voice technology that exists out there. Um, mm -hmm. It just, it's hard to get better. They've done it with Alexa. Um, they've done it with a lot of their work and they're very impressive. Um, there are lots of other good people in healthcare, whether it's Nuance or others that really are trying. Um, then I think that you're gonna see this again, mature, not new it's a maturing of the voice to allow for um, sophisticated language between you and I to go from open language to discrete and allow for the work that the electronic medical record needs to happen amazing that is I Go ahead, Alan. <laughs> it's okay. I, Roberta, just because we're, you, you know, I'm being mindful of your time, we're, we're a little short on time. So I want to jump over to what we call the fast five lightning round is basically five questions to get to know you better for our audience. Um, the first question that we have is 
what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? Um, you know, lately, uh, the book I've recommended to a lot of people is um, uh, The Nine. Um, I thought that was fantastic. The President's Club, mm. um, I thought was a great book. Um, when it comes to uh, healthcare, there are so many. I can't, I can't even um, tell you. I'm, I'm reading them all the time from the latest Quint Studer to, you can see usually about six of them behind my desk. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's fun to read, but I do like historical and historical fiction in the Garden of Beasts. Nice, um, yeah. Devil in the White City. I'm, I'm big, big into this. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, question two, how has an apparent failure set you up for greater success? Um, I think one of the ones that everyone will appreciate is um, the little and the big failures. Um, uh, little ones like sending the email just to the wrong person. <laughs> totally didn't mean to, right? Like, and, and then making sure to check them afterwards to the big ones of um, realizing that an action that you, you took or did hurt somebody. And um, whether you did or didn't mean to, um, I will tell you one of mine was um, in, in our staff people going around to try to figure out why African-Americans had a lower rate of vaccine than whites and taking it in a very scientific manner and not realizing that it was very personal to people and mm -hmm. taking it very personally. And, and I, as a leader, had to learn and grow from that. And, and I think that, that we all do. Yeah, that's great. Uh, question three, this is different, but <laughs> would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Uh, definitely the ability to read people's minds so I can do a better job. <laughs> I like that. You're using it for a productive reason. Using it for good. I like yeah, that. Using yeah. it for good. You know, I, I would really, I, I, like, I hate that I sometimes hurt people and not think of how they might feel and, and well, I really want to do better. Oh, that's great. Uh, question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? Sometimes I, 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 I do joke that um, there's a reason every soap opera has a hospital at the center. Hmm. Hmm. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I need to get into more. There's a lot of things that happen in a hospital. That's funny. That's great. And then last question that we have, Roberta, uh, this is a pandemic lockdown related question, but what is one hobby or activity you've gotten into since the beginning of the pandemic? You know, I, I saw this question in advance and the sad part is um, I have no hobbies. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I've, I've done a lot to in when I go home to almost minimize the stuff in my house. I realized how mm. little I actually need to mm. make me happy and um, and have done a lot of cleaning. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's great. Well, I mean, you were you were very busy during the pandemic, so we can't blame you or fault you for that. Um, awesome. Well, Roberta, just you know, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, you're a wealth of wisdom. You've done a ton over your career and it's been just so exciting for us to um, chat with you further about all of this innovation that you're leading and all of your experience throughout your entire career so thank you so much for coming on the show today and uh, just sharing your time with us it was absolutely my pleasure and thank you so much for having me mm -hmm.